Hey there collaborators, thanks for sticking around to catch the second episode of Science at All, which was recorded on September 3rd, 2020. I know I said I would hope to send episodes out twice a month, but as I will mention at the end of this episode, tis the season for applications. I'm applying to a couple PhD programs and fellowships, so I've been prioritizing writing applications and statements for that, while also working full-time. Meanwhile, I encourage you to follow this podcast on Twitter at Science at All Pod for updates or anything I might tweet during my writing breaks. I would also like to point you towards the episode description where you'll find links to the audio transcript or to organizations and resources that we mentioned during the episode. As always, if you would like to be a featured guest, feel free to DM the Twitter account or send an email to neuronnerd.info at gmail.com where we can get a conversation going. All right. You've waited long enough for this. Here's the rest of this episode. Et al. Abbreviation. A Latin phrase for quote and others. End quote. Used when referring to a long list of collaborators involved in producing scientific research. My name is Dominic Havanillo. I play one of those supporting roles in science working as a lab assistant who typically gets grouped into that blanket et al. phrase. This podcast highlights those supporting players, giving them a chance in the spotlight to discuss their scientific journey. But their self-portrait is not just limited to science. There are different interests, activities, and identities outside science that inform and influence each other. Every aspect converges into a more holistic sense of self. This is science with other collaborators. This is science with other intersections of life. This is science et al. Hello collaborators, welcome to episode two of Science et al, a podcast highlighting the science journey and lives of the supporting players of STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. For this episode, I'm talking with a good friend of mine who probably enjoys talking to a rubber duck more than I do. It's Andrew Juarez. Hello, thank you for having me on. Uh, just gonna throw us out there when you said steam the first thing that came to my mind is the gaming platform of gamers so i thought that this was a gaming platform all of a sudden but uh so maybe for those who are unfamiliar with the phrase steam do you want to clarify that yeah so for a while stem has been kind of the standard way to describe really the big umbrella of sciences uh recently there's been a push to also include art because a lot of elements of art graphic design especially with that of visualization, really plays a huge role in STEM. So a lot of proponents have supported including arts in STEM. Okay. All right. So just building off of that, where have you seen art make its way into your life as a scientist? Well, for me personally, I've done a lot of infographics and science communication work that implement a lot of graphic design elements to it. For me personally, that's the way that my creative artistic juices kind of go flowing, especially in terms of the topics that I want to communicate about. For others, it might also be visualization of data. So you have your bar plots and trying to best make the story of the research more accessible to whoever is reading it. And definitely like when you're crafting a scientific research paper or any type of report, the better craft that you do in formulating the story and kind of depicting the story, the better the audience can get the message across to them. Right. Okay. 
yeah, I would definitely say that it's a very important element to include without sort of having that artistic knowledge go into our communication. Your message might not be as effective as you intend it to be. Right, exactly. So on that point, do you want to give your brief introduction to yourself? Sure, yeah. So as Dominic mentioned, my name is Andrew Juarez. My pronouns are he and him. I am a recent graduate from the University of California, Irvine. I got my bachelor's in computer science. I graduated in March of 2020, and right now I'm currently working as a software engineer at AT&T. Before I started off at AT&T, I was working in tech support for a small business that handled IT infrastructure for other small businesses in the Orange County area. We had a couple of clients down in San Diego as well. So I would drive around, go to my job, sort of build relationships with people. I was customer service. And maybe I want to go back just a little bit further. So sort of introducing how I got involved in computers, start off in high school. So I went to a technical high school where we had different concentrations. I happened to choose the computer science route. And it's interesting because at the time, I didn't see myself pursuing a career in computer science. The reason for that is because I really struggled to understand some of the basic concepts at the time. I was just barely getting by, so I didn't see any sort of joy in pursuing that. So I didn't start off going to a four-year university when I graduated college. I went to the community college route. Uh, that's local from my house. I started off as a bio major with intent to go into dental school and going back to the IT job. So I kept a close relationship with one of the computer science teachers from high school. And he just knew I was a trustworthy student. You know, he confided in me. He approached me one day saying, hey, I'm working at this company that handles the IT for dental offices. So he asked me if I wanted an interview. At the time I was working at Domino's Pizza making minimum wage. I said, yes, that'd be great. I'm interested, you know, I love computers. So a few months to that job, you know, I still had intentions of going to dental school, but ironically working with inside of these dental offices, I didn't see myself working in an environment like that. I thought uh, it wasn't something I would be happy in. So I was happened to be in IT. So I thought, you know what, maybe I should give computer science one more try. So in my community college, I enrolled in some C++ and Java programming classes. And sure enough, I aced them. I got A's on them. I did really great. And it's funny because for whatever reason, computer programming classes like my community college were offered on Saturdays and they were three hours each. So I would go in like at 8 a.m., three hours, you know, ends at 11, take like a 30 minute lunch break or whatever, go for another three hours. So I was spending my whole Saturday at a school for a semester and I happened to make the president's list. I somehow managed to maintain up of a 3.5 GPA. Oh, congratulations. Which, <laughs> thank you. So I thought something was going right there. I was taking 18 and a half units, presence list, excelling. Okay, sure, why not? So then I decided to sort of talk to my counselors, see how I can make that change to computer science. So they told me if I wanted to sort of pursue a four-year degree at a university. Which community college did you go to? So I went to Rio Hondo in Whittier. It's, like I mentioned, just down the street from me. So it's been local to me my whole life. I grew up here in Whittier and still currently live here. Okay. So yeah, I, well, once I set off to do that, I was sort of looking around at the local universities. I knew I wanted to go to UC. And if you ask why, it's because of name recognition. You know, I kind of fell for that trap of, oh, it's a prestigious university. 
So <laughs> I don't know if it's so much of a trap. Maybe it's just all uh maybe was the council the counselors like kind of push you towards the UC direction or was it just kind of like take a program? So it's interesting. Like more so like social pressure from like parents and just society that sort of deems UCs are better than Cal States. Is it true? I don't know. You can may argue that there might be cons to and pros to either or. So I just went to UC. Yeah, it certainly depends on what your intent is. Like certainly at UCs, if your intent is to do scientific research, perhaps that is better because I think most UCs are research institutions. Mm -hmm. But if your route is not that, then obviously you got to cater to your current conditions and what you want. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you could argue that, hey, UC is the way to go if you do research. But ironically enough, I never did research. So, I mean, things happen for a reason. so going back to when I was deciding what school I want to transfer to, so I was looking at what the different requirements were for transferring. UC Irvine was very close to home. It was like close enough to where I can be close to my family, but far enough to where I can move out of the house so I could sort of see what it's like to have a taste of independence and mm-hmm. be on my own, see what the real world is like. Yeah. Spooky. <laughs> um, Adulting. Yeah. Okay. Was the transition very difficult from going from a CC to the UCI curriculum? Hmm. So... I want to say yes, but I think I managed well. I think well, that... Well, you graduated, so that's... <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where your mileage may vary. So it's really hard to say that, you know, I, I was good at it, so therefore anyone else would be good at it. It's really going to depend on so many different factors from your maturity as a person to how well you can sort of branch off from your family if you've never had before, you know, depending on what culture you're from family plays an integral part it could be very emotional okay yeah no that's a good point a lot of non-western cultures really value the family unit and especially when encountering college there's definitely that aspect of needing to be close to the family unit because it is sometimes your emotional and moral support other times you do need that independence and that separation away to kind of grow yourself and i think that's that's good that's cool yes 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 i feel like you really do learn about a lot about yourself you could really learn of how much can you actually sustain yourself? It teaches you a lot about financial responsibility because, you know, most people, I know there's some people who are unfortunate where their parents would, you know, kick them out of the house or whatever. But if you have some parents keeping you under the roof rent-free and stuff, it really makes a big difference because then you have a lot more play money, stuff for going out, having fun, going out to restaurants. But once you move out on your own and then like if your parents are no longer financially supporting you, you have to learn about budgeting. I'm no economic strategist or advisor of any kind, but you just know that inflation has gone up like crazy, but minimum wage hasn't. So when you're in college working minimum wage, there's no way you're going to make it. So you have to look into, okay, well, if financial aid won't cover the majority of things, I'm going to have to take out a student loan. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I had to do. I had to make that decision, which, you know, it wasn't too bad in debt. I know some people are like six years in debt, but I was fortunate enough to where I could have it paid off in maybe right. a year. And yeah, and, some, and that's like the pull that CCs have over just going straight into the four-year institution. And you can just take all your GEs and get those out of the way, especially nowadays with online lecturing and online learning. You certainly get a very similar experience from the CCs and UCs in that aspect. And one just costs a lot more money. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I would argue that the community college would give you a better GE experience because you have much smaller class sizes. Like in our classes, 
you'd probably have like 30 students. The largest classes I had were 60 students and those tended to be like sciences and maths. So like physics. Mm -hmm. So it's overwhelming at UCI how you have, you know, up to 300, maybe even 400 students in a single lecture hall, depending on the capacity of it. They really jam pack it. The smallest classes there were like a couple hundred students, you know? So when I got there, I just felt like a little ant. It's just, mm -hmm. you're there and all the seats are sort of centered around looking down towards a professor, you know, who looks like a little ant just lecturing there with a microphone. And that's just funny because in community college, like, as I mentioned, there's like 30 students in the classroom, professors that need a microphone. You could actually get to know people's names if you put in the effort, whereas mm -hmm. UCI, no. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes I meet people next to me and then... And you never hear from them after that class again. Right, because it's just yeah. so, it's just a big classroom it could sit anywhere and you really have to go out of your way to you know find people and meet them so it makes it really difficult to sort of get to know people when you know if you have very small talk of hi i'm andrew sit next to them shake hands whatever pre-covid days oh, by the way and then it's like you have to really make an effort to sort of find them sit next to them again and then by that point they probably don't even remember your name so you really have to go out of your way to make connections whereas in community college it's 30 students. You could, if you really put in the effort, you could get to know everyone's name. Yeah, and that's great because um, networking is so important, especially in a um, field like computer science or engineering where networking um, and getting into industry is just like the thing after college. Yeah, definitely. Okay, um, going back to the differences between the CCs and perhaps UCI, did you experience any like staggering differences worth mentioning like was the approach to computer science different at UCs compared to UCI oh yeah definitely the professors definitely have more how do I put this I don't want to talk badly on my CC professors because the one who taught me Java and C++ I love her she's a great woman but UC professors are just on a whole different level they're very knowledgeable um, for example my first year at UCI my first Python instructor was a part-time instructor while he worked in industry. So he brought that industry knowledge to us and passed it to us. Whereas the community college is kind of like, sometimes people, it varies. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're full-time instructors. Right. Other times they're just like a seasonal instructor. Like, you know, the school was low on instructors. So they literally just contacted some random person with a master's and said, hey, we need you to fill this spot. And they do it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's different. I'm not, I, I don't know what's the best way to describe it. But I mean. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly different. They're, it's not expected to be, you know, the same. One will have more resources over the other. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I mean it's difference is okay and trying to navigate that difference is really what makes a really good successful student content wise was one more practical over the other i remember from previous conversations we've had you've mentioned that the uci programs seem to be more theoretically based compared to other programs yeah. that you've been in perhaps yeah so hmm. the thing is with the uc system is as you mentioned it's all very theoretical based so it's nice to learn like your algorithms from, you know, a professor who has some publications in this. Definitely you wouldn't get that from CC or if you do, you're lucky. So I guess an, uh, an interesting way to segment this is sometimes you have UC professors come to the CCs 
for instance, I had Bio 101 taught by a UCLA professor on his free time. He said he really loves teaching and, you know, UCLA would only give him so many classes to teach. So you might have those little uh, special treats thrown your way. And like, he was super honest. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm a UCLA professor. He didn't mean to say it like in a very boastful way, but he was trying to say like, you're getting that knowledge from UCLA professor, but I'm giving you community college level tests. I'm not going to test you as your UCLA right. students. So there was that nice little treat thrown in. Oh, yeah, like personally, so my path, I went straight out of high school to a four-year institution. From everything I've heard from transfer students, I definitely regret that decision. And in terms of professors, yeah, I wish I could have that comparison to make between CCs and UCs. But I mean, from my own experience, I've had some pretty bad bio professors. So I can only imagine how much better the professors that visit the CCs might be. Because again, the UCs are a primarily research institution. It's really focused on research, not so much teaching. And so that's some of the fallout that some professors might have. Like they might be more focused on research compared to teaching and their record shows that. Yes, yes. I definitely agree at Rio Hondo College all of my professors were decent mm-hmm. or better good great got to UCI I had some god-awful professors and you know if any of them find this podcast I hope they don't know I was in their no. class and try to hunt me down or something <laughs> we're not that big yet <laughs> hold on there we're not that big yet but yeah so like for instance you have professors who were just so passionate about their research when it came to teaching they didn't know what they were doing they were just For instance, I had a cryptography professor who was just, you could tell just by the way he talked, dude was a genius, but his teaching sucked. Like, it was just so confusing. He was on the chalkboard all over the place. And I kid you not, first day of class, he couldn't figure out how to use PowerPoint and no one was brave enough to go up there and help him figure it out. So he resorted to chalkboard. Oh man, it was like, just so terrible. It sounds a bit counterintuitive (laughs) to me. (laughs) Like someone teaching computer science, it wasn't adept at. Well, it wasn't, hmm, how do I put, it wasn't so much like computer science, like computers. It was more like math. It was like math. Yeah. So it was technically a, uh, shoot, what was it called? It was like some kind of discrete math course. I forget the exact Mm -hmm. name of it, but yeah. So it was just discrete algebra. I don't remember. (laughs) Like, like, Uh, don't, don't worry, don't sweat it. Because like literally after graduation, most of the classes just kind of, go over our heads and we can enter in the real world and the career fields we choose. Yeah, yeah. So it was just one of those foundational courses that sort of led up to Mm -hmm. understanding some of the bigger things in computer science. Okay. So what's your favorite programming language? Hmm. So this has been varying a lot. Uh, For a while, I was a high proponent of Python because it's just so versatile as long as you install the Python interpreter on any machine, Windows, Mac, or Linux, you could write one Python file and run on any system. And its syntax was very easy to understand. I used to actually teach it to kids uh, during a part-time job I had. Uh, I would teach kids on the weekends how to code Python from ages 6 to like 13 years old. So if like kids could learn it, then it's an easy language to learn. Mm-hmm. So as of recently, I'm more inclined to say JavaScript because as with Python, it's so versatile, but it's used primarily for websites and servers. And it's just so multi-purpose. So, you know, if you go back to 20 years or so, you would have your HTML for your web page, and then you'd have some sort of archaic server running maybe Java or some other language like 
C sharp. But now you can use JavaScript to do both the web pages on the front end and the server for your back end. So the fact that you can use a single language to do both is just revolutionary to me because, mm -hmm. hey, I only need to know one language and really understand it. I don't have to go learning two languages and making the mistake of, oh, wait, this command I just typed, it's for the other system. So it's just nice to just okay. be have one language in mind. Can you just, just recap what you mean by front end and back end to maybe some of the listeners who might not be first in computer science? Sure, yeah. So front end is like your visualization of stuff. So let's say you log into facebook.com, you know, you type in your username and email, sorry, your, your email and your password, and you hit that button, you click submit. So the front end captures your email and your password, and then it's gonna send it off to a server you know, whether it be local to where you are or on the other side of the world. And what that server is going to do is it's going to take that username and password. And mind you, this is now considered the back end. So that server residing in, let's say, Mountain View, California, is going to verify that your email and password are a good combination. So then if it is, it will send a response back to your web browser, the front end saying, hey, Andrew is a verified user of Facebook, allow him access. So now the front end will take that information, process it, and bring up my account. So initially, this is all happening like within milliseconds, these responses. And that's the thing I love about computers is they travel so fast. I just wish humans can travel that fast. Maybe we can. And I mean, what Elon Musk already has us on computer chips. So I'm sure that technology is almost down the oh, road. Hmm. You know, one thing I'm going to tell you is I don't want to be a guinea pig for any of that because if I suddenly disappear from existence, yeah, where do, where'd I go? You know, <laughs> I don't want my conscious living in the internet mm -hmm. for eternity. That would be very, <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. No, but no, it's like apocalyptic, dystopic science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> in your current position, where are you working in terms of that relationship? Are you working more front end? You're working more back end? So yeah, I'm doing both. And a person who does both is called a full stack developer. So I work with the HTML pages. I work with the back end. I work with the databases. So being a full stack developer is kind of being like a generalist where you have like a good idea of how all this works. There are pros and cons, you know, you know, as I mentioned, I can work on all of them. The con is though, I can't master all of them. So even though I might be more inclined to say, you know, I'm more front end or back end centric, it's great, but I still need to know the other in order to be company enough right. to, to consider myself a full stack developer. Whereas some people are dedicated to being, you know, a full-time back end developer. So those people really understand server technologies, how do you scale databases, stuff like that. You know, sometimes you might have to consult with those people if you're working on a specific project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to give you an idea of what I do right now, I take data from multiple databases and I put this all in a single user interface for users to visualize and work with all this data in a single platform. So that's why instead of having to open so many separate Internet Explorer tabs or programs mm -hmm. where you might use, if you could do it all from one website, it's going to tremendously speed up your okay. process. So are these users the actual customers or are they more like administrators uh, or analysts? So it's an internal tool used internally. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'm not too sure on the specifics of who uses it, but basically management and data analyst. 
Well, for a project that big, I'm assuming it's a very collaborative environment there, uh, which is a great, which is why like someone who's in computer science is so great for this podcast because a lot of parts come together into a well-functioning whole. Well, mm-hmm. hopefully no bugs or anything, but yeah. Oh, no promises on that, but yeah. uh, uh, so do you know how the phrase bug came out to be in software? Do you know how that came out I to be say, a term in computer science? This is just going to be a wild guess. Is it because it's like a pest so you want to squash it close enough that's how i feel when i have bugs on my code i just want to throw my laptop out the window (laughs) but yeah so back in you know a few decades ago when computers were first a thing they had punch cards for those of you who are not familiar think of as like your voting ballots where you punch a hole through it. So that's why the machine can then sort of determine who you're voting for, where mm-hmm. you're casting a revolt. Is it on the left side or the right side? So being in computer science, everything is in binary, meaning that there's two states. You're either on or off. So when... The one and zero, right? Yep, yep exactly. Okay. Yeah, so... Yeah, I know something. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> okay. So one being on, zero being off. In the case of punch cards, what you would do is you would punch holes in your card that would then be read by the computer. So it saw that if there was a hole, that would be considered a one. If there was no hole, that would become considered a zero. So back in these days when you're programming, I'm doing air quotes for those who can't see, you would then take all your punch cards when, after you're done with that process, put them through the machine, it'll read them one at a time, and then it will do some sort of calculation, whether it's adding numbers or subtracting, doing multiplication. And that all sounds very easy. But back then, mm-hmm. like that was a big deal because everything was done by hand or like yeah. abacuses. So if you can have a computer do this for you, and hence the name computer, because it would, you know, do mathematical Compute. equations for you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How far back are we talking? Like 1950s or like 1800s? Uh, so I don't... <laughs> Uh, I'm not a good at computer science history, so yeah, I'm just yeah, gonna. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly sure. I want to say 40s or 50s, around there. Yeah, maybe even early 60s. We'll put it in. We'll put it in the shelf of far back enough. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, you know, these whole these punch cards have holes in them. So, someone was running their program, but it was like having an error. It wasn't giving them the value that they expected. And so they're going through these punch cards to see what might be wrong with them. And sure enough, I guess, I forget what kind of bug it was. Maybe a moth got stuck in between the punch cards. And so it was blocking the computer from recognizing there was a hole in a specific spot. So that's where the phrase came from. Oh, there's a bug in the code because back then. So you're telling me this now universal term for computer problems was caused because of a literal bug. Yep, yep. And that's how it stuck by because then, you know, came later when they're like wondering why things went wrong, they would ask, oh, is there a bug in it? So they would go look for it. And it just so happened to catch on to where we still use it today, even though everything's purely digital now, we still call it, you know, a bug in the software. It's just you can't see the listeners can't see it, but I'm so stressed out right now (laughs) from this revelation. 
Oh my goodness. I wonder if there's anything like that inside. Well, uh, in biology, when we discover genes or when someone discovers like a function of a gene, they, you know, they get to name it and whatnot. So there's quite a bit of tongue in cheek names for particular genes. Like there's a Sonic the Hedgehog gene based on Sonic the Hedgehog. Wow. Why, why would you name it that? Did Sonic the Hedgehog himself discover? Yeah. So I think this was back in the 90s or when Sega and was really big. I'm okay. not a gamer. So the fact that I associate associated Sonic the Hedgehog and Sega is a win. Well, that's definitely an easier name than what astronomers name stars. Uh, you know, they just K1F. They, you know, they just sound like stormtrooper yeah. names. It's like, how are you supposed to distinguish? Yeah, that star up there, that's KP247. I don't know. I don't have mental retention of stuff like that. But if I were to say, hey, mm -hmm. that's Sonic the Hedgehog star, that's easier to remember. So I kind of want to talk about your experience in both the education system. We're learning computer programming. And also now that you've had a couple months in the industry, how do you feel as a minority from a minority community and underrepresented community? Sure. Yeah. So I am a queer person of color. I come from a Mexican-American background. I'm a third generation Mexican-American here in the USA. My grandma came over. My grandfather was born here in this country. I fall in the, the category of Latinx. So coming from a Latinx background, you're always told that some people don't want you to succeed in this world because, you know, the reality of the world is that it's run mm -hmm. by white men on Wall Street or whatever. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's five white guys heading like biotech and other tech industry giants now. Yeah. Yeah. And then just sort of being a Mexican-American, the stereotypes are that we're farm laborers or, you know, we're blue collar workers working in restaurants, stuff like that. So to sort of have the opportunity to get into the sciences is definitely amazing because just as I mentioned, those stereotypes say that, no, I shouldn't be here, that I should be mm -hmm. out in the farm fields picking cherries or whatever. But the fact that I am here talking to you about this science stuff and working a full-time job as a software engineer is really cool. And don't get me wrong, it was there def it definitely was a work to get to where I am today, like sort of combating people, naysayers, not letting me go through. Even I even had school counselors tell me that I wouldn't be able to get a degree in computer science. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I proved them wrong. And the fact that I beat statistics is just amazing. Um, so it, it can also be used to your advantage. So for instance, DNI diversity and inclusion is really huge right now, or at least some companies claim for it to be. Yeah, like they can talk the talk, but actual action comes through. It's kind of problematic, but yeah. Yes, yes, I agree. Like, so I was, you know, I've had some recruiters tell me basically along the lines of, hey, you're a Hispanic person. We want you to work for our company because we want you to increase diversity and inclusion. It's like, okay. So it kind of got me thinking, well, does my experience fit for your need? Or are you just wanting me? So that's why, you know, you could brag to people. Like a token. Yeah. You know, and it's just kind of like also having that queer identity where sometimes you have people who are like, oh, hey, we need a gay friend in our group. Come hang out with us. And you it's think like, there's like a, yeah, there's like a bad taste in your mouth afterwards. Yeah. Like, like, am I, or am I just a token for you to shine around and say, hey, this is my gay best friend. He's going to mm -hmm. go shopping with us and we're going to have a great time sipping iced coffee. So, yeah, but I mean, it did, it could work out to your advantage. I mean, I definitely got, at least some recruiters told me that it got me sort of noticed that, you know, when they're sifting through resume piles, they see, you know, someone with the Hispanic mm -hmm. last name. So that could sort of open initial dialogue. So how is it being Latinx in um, the UCs, for instance? Um, like, were your classes also kind of fairly diverse? Yeah. So I went, 
you know, as we've talked earlier in this podcast, as I went to UCI, and there are a lot of Asians there, but there's also a huge uh, Latinx population. I definitely saw a lot of more brown people there than I sort of imagined there would be, which is nice to see that, hey, you know, we're sort of increasing our numbers in college. Mm -hmm. I think there was a recent statistic the other day that says that Latinx people are starting to become like one of the biggest population of acceptances into the UC system. So it's nice to see. But however, I think there still sort of needs to be that community building in place. All right, so now we are in the at all section. It really is speaking towards your own life outside of your scientific field, just to give the listeners, you know, a better understanding of who we were listening to. Because, you know, I mean, despite what we've talked about, you being behind the computer and also talking about your ethnic and racial background, there's also a life outside science that kind of intersects with how you go about your career. So outside of science, you're also working to build up this website, this app potential business entrepreneurship project that you had in mind do you want to speak more on that and how basically you're kind of bringing in your experience from computer science into creating this idea into a reality yeah so i felt like in com- you know studying computer science in school there's always just these projects where they tell you hey you know what we need you to make this program that will sort through this data within a reasonable amount of time um here's some best practices of how to sort of handle all those different cases. How are you gonna account for if the data's blank or if the data's corrupt? But there's not so much of like innovation in the sense of, hey, we want you to come up with your own idea and impress us. So this is kind of like something where hackathons come into play. And for those of you who are not familiar with hackathons, they're usually these university student-led weekend-long competitions where students come from all over the place, whether it be from the university or neighboring universities or even the other side of the country. You have hundreds of students come in, you form teams of about four to five, and you have a weekend, which is usually like 48 hours. You know, you start Friday night and then you end Sunday morning. The purpose of these hackathons is to come up with an idea, sort of build a prototype of sorts to demo to judges. And there are cash prizes and as well as like swag, depending on who's sponsoring these events. So some sponsors include Facebook, Google, Amazon, other big tech companies, maybe even local tech companies, et cetera. So for instance, I went to one right before COVID caused a shutdown here called Queer Hacks at UCLA, where it's just a bunch of queer computer scientists and as well as the other people who are interested. And I actually won for once, which was my first time winning, which was at a Queer Hack, which was great. So Facebook Mm -hmm. was the sponsor of the prize category one. So I ended up getting a cute Instagram hoodie. Yeah, Yeah. it is kind of like in a way being a billboard for Instagram, but you know, it was just so accomplished. I felt great for winning for once. So yeah, it's just also, you know, these ideas spark, you know, hey, you know what, if I really want to put in the effort and time, I could build something. And then given school projects are just things that the professors want to grade, you know, by TAs or by an automatic grader. So I wanted to exercise creative juices. So I then turned Mm -hmm. to entrepreneurship of like, okay, well, what if I start my own side business or just put a website out there, some sort of application that people could use that would make their lives better or easier, whatever, however you want to view that and see, you know, how can I use that to my advantage to 
either make the world a better place or if I want to make money or do both, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've definitely explored opening up some side businesses. I've had some that, you know, I sort of pitched the idea out there at competitions at school, but then was told, hey, you know what? How are you going to make money from this? Like, if you don't make money, you can't sustain yourself. What are you doing? No one's going to invest in you. So I was like, okay, well, scrap that idea. And then one thing that I do a lot on the side is I like to tend to plants. So I grow, you know, I have like over 15 different plants in my room right now. I have plants in the backyard. So I had an idea of, well, let's see, if I can make life easier for plant owners, help them increase their plant collection. If they have something they no longer want, how would you initiate that trade process? Because you can use Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or... Yeah, offer up. Yeah. But the thing is, these apps are not meant for that. So if you want just those things, you have to sift through the other crap that's listed as well. And as well as sort of finding a community that you can trust of people. So I decide, okay, why don't I build my own platform? Right. a user-driven community where people can post their plans, sell them, trade them, whatever they want to do. So for instance, let's say I have a bamboo palm that I no longer want and you just happen to want it. And if you have some sort of allocation I want, I'll say, hey, you know what? I like your allocation. I'll give you my bamboo palm for it. You agree? We meet up the person, do the trade. Yeah. Cool. We're out of our ways. So I am in the process of bringing this to fruitation and I've been working with a UX designer to sort of make this a pleasant experience because me oh what's ux oh okay i'm glad you asked so yeah just to give you guys an idea in computer science if you are a strict computer science major you learn like the theory and fundamentals of how to program how computers operate but they don't teach you how to build software for users they just teach you how to make software that works and that your professor is happy mm-hmm. as long as they could run it with their auto grader great so there's this thing called user experience the acronym is ux so what UX does focuses primarily on the research that goes behind of how do people interact with computer systems. So for instance, when you use your phone and you log on to Facebook, there is a user experience of, okay, how do I log in? How do I view data? How do I befriend people? You know, if they just listed everything in one single page, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss here, but it'd be a cluster F word of just all these different things. And it's not going to look pretty. People are going to be discouraged. They're not going to use it. Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't be a billionaire right now. Yeah. But because he has a team of UX researchers who go out and do field studies to see what works for different users, you know, what makes people inclined to return to use a product, that's going to make all the difference. I took a class called Human-Computer Interaction at UCI, which sort of touches on those fundamentals. It was a lot of theory. And I told Dom this off camera, which is like, it's such a great class like it really opened my eyes to see what makes software successful and accessible yes and accessible thank you so if you just build software willy-nilly and even though it looks good for you but if someone is blind or colorblind for that matter comes in and it looks like garbage for the colorblind person they cannot read red text on a green background that's going to be an issue Mm -hmm. Um, i don't want to you know discourage people from using my site or even also we talked on accessibility for blind people so they talked about using alt text for images which you know helps them with the screen recorder so for those of you who don't know what that means is um, if you don't have a monitor and, or if not, if you're not able to see your content, what the alt text does is instead of the image, it's going to read to the screen reader, what that image is depicting. So if it's a pie chart that shows the amount of people who eat dinner after 6 PM, a blind person's not going to be able to read that through the pie chart. But if you sort of write that in as alt text, that's why the screen reader reads it out loud to the blind person. Mm-hmm. It's going to help them access your data. Yeah. And these are like the subtle ways in which STEM produces a more accessible environment really 
really for everyone. Um, and definitely like from the talks that I've had with Andrew about this class, um, it certainly influenced the way that I produce my own content, particularly with infographics. I do have to include, you know, text descriptions, alt text as well, because especially with data visualization, it's a very visual medium. So how can you make it more accessible for those who perhaps are visually impaired. Right. And it's just not accessibility issues, but it's also emotional connection to your different users. So the interesting thing about mm -hmm. human computer interaction is you learn it's a multidisciplinary field. It includes, you know, not just computer scientists, it includes the people who do the research, it includes psychologists to see how people react under certain situations. So for example, the way you design a website here in the U.S. will be perceived differently in a country where colors have different meanings. Even mm -hmm. when you're translating for different regional users, you know, a word in English might have a totally, if you try direct translating it, like let's say, you know, a certain task, if you translate to the other language, it might be perceived as a curse word or something that's just foul. So you definitely need to sort of do that research and mm -hmm. sort of be accessible. So. Oh, no, yeah, for sure. Which really calls to attention the need to diversify um, the STEM field, especially in this aspect of a globalized um, yeah. computer system or user system. Yeah. So going back to my project. So, yeah, I just want to make sure that, you know, I build something that's going to actually be used by people that people enjoy using. So I've been... Uh, contracting with a mm -hmm. UX designer and researcher to sort of help me figure out like branding, what's going to work, what users like to see, stuff like that. Because if I just built it out on my own thinking of what I had in mind, to be honest, I didn't think it would have actually maintained a very strong user base. It might have just flopped right away. But with these sort of designs that I now right. have in my possession, I could build something that I have faith that will eventually be a use of many people. How did you come across the this person? So there's an organization called Out in Tech, which focuses on bringing queer and trans people into technology to, I guess, meet up, congregate, share ideas, stuff like that. So it is a global organization. I believe they have chapters in the UK, maybe some more other European countries, and as well as here in America. So I joined the Slack group, Hmm. Maybe about a year ago. And then, you know, I just thought, hey, you know what, if I'm going to find someone, I want to hire someone that, you know, I can sort of give back to the community queer, someone who's queer. So that's why I could help them, you know, succeed in life. So I threw out mm -hmm. my idea of what I wanted to build. And in this Slack group, the UX designer reached out to me and said, hey, you know what, I'm interested. We had a, a Zoom call. We sort of talked about the project. I showed him like what I currently started building, told him my vision for it. And then he sort of proposed what he wanted to do so then yeah i agreed we signed a contract he put out some work came up with an awesome logo for me and then <laughs> uh, as i said hey you know what? i really like this i decided to even uh sign some more contracts to get more work pumped out for this so i'm really excited to now put these designs into fruitation and uh have a working app out maybe uh originally i was intending for september so it should have been coming out in a couple weeks but I've been moving slower than anticipated, but I just sort of got the final designs today to get my MVP out. For those who don't know, MVP stands for Minimum Viable Product, which is essentially something that you could sort of have for people to play around with and give sort of feedback to build a better product. So yeah, I'm going to try to have that out by the end of the year, but yeah, so I'm excited for it. So if you guys want to look out for it, if you're interested in plants, 
you should look out for Plant Shelf. It's not ready yet. So if depending on when you're listening to this podcast, if it's still September, uh, give me a couple more months, please. <laughs> yeah. COVID will do that to you. So you mentioned one organization. Did you also join other organizations that might have that kind of helped produce opportunities? Yes, yes, yes. Um, so an organization that was big for me is the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, or SHIP for short. Uh, we have chapters all over the nation. I forget how many there are in total, but it's thousands of students and uh, professionals. Uh, so by professionals, I mean people who are in industry. And it's really unique because like, I was never exposed to anything like that in community college. So when I heard about it initially, I was like, okay, this seems cool, like a bunch of brown people. Because starting off in college at UCI, I was in an environment where I didn't know anyone. So who did I want to sort of network with? People who are the same ethnicity as I am. So that's why we could sort of have those similar experiences. We enjoy the same foods, you know, start off that conversation, hit it off. Cool, have fun. And they were very pivotal for me. So as the name is Hispanic Professional Engineers, we have stuff such as resume workshops, mock interviews, stuff like that. So how each college runs their chapters different. So at UCI, we had different committees. So like, for example, there was a professional committee, which focused on like professional development. There was a tech committee, which was for the computer science students, which focused on like, as the name implies, technical stuff. There was Mm -hmm. ship dinas, which is for women to come together and just be engineers together. There was even a ship junior committee, which would go to a local high school and sort of encourage high school students who are getting ready for the college process, determine what they want to do, you know, career-wise, if they want to go to UC or if they want to study STEM, stuff like that. So they'd help them out with like filling out applications, which is really nice. Okay, that's cool. I think it was my second year at UCI, I joined. So inside of this professional committee, my second year, they helped me develop my elevator pitch, my resume. Like I remember the first time I took my resume, there was just a bunch of scribbles all over it of them critiquing it saying you know you should move this here you should move this like why is this here like remove this from your resume and so you know a resume is just one of those things that's never done it's always iterating to the next version so once i updated that you know worked on my elevator pitch it was interview time so i went out uh, having back-to-back interviews for internships as well as full-time jobs because i knew i would you know graduation came a lot quicker than it is and that's another thing about transferring to a four-year university when you're there you only have a couple years versus instead of having the full four years or more or five if you take a fifth year so time goes by so fast you don't have time to necessarily relax Mm -hmm. you've got to get in do your classes and start interviewing for your jobs it's very fast-paced it's crazy how fast they will go so yeah i mean the professional committee at ship at uci really helped me develop these things and i you know met some great people that i actually talk to now we help each other out we refer each other to jobs i just got a friend hired at a startup I used to work for before AT&T. It's just such a great rewarding feeling to help people out and just have that network to fall back on. You know, everyone has each other. So if you need anything, like some people would even help each other out. Like if they need a, you know, like a room to sleep in for a night, if, you know, they lost their place or whatever reason, or if they're in the middle moving. So it's just nice to have people look after each other. Yeah, like especially... Um, first generation students who you know it's the first time that a person in their family has gone to college in the U.S. like they don't have the knowledge 
to, you know, seek out these opportunities, like, because I'm the eldest of my family and the first one to, you know, come to college in the US, especially in biology. My first two years, I was interested in medicine, but I had no idea that I was supposed to like get into research so that my application would be even more bumped up. So, you know, just having that network that can mentor you to be the, you know, the most successful person that you'd want to be the best version of yourself um, once you graduate is definitely important, especially in a field that's not made for people like us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when competition is so high, you know, mm-hmm. when computer science is an impacted field, no matter what college you're going to, it's going to be tough to get into because everyone sees that there's a high demand for tech jobs. But once you do graduate, you're competing with so many people graduating at once. So you really do have to make yourself stand apart. And it's really nice to have these communities to help you, you know, become the best version of yourself. So that's why you could be a more desirable candidate for these companies. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm glad that you were able to have that experience in your university. So the final question for this section is how computer sciences has kind of bled into your personal life experience. I guess to start out, we mentioned before that you took this human computer interaction class, right? And like, I guess in these classes, like, have you like really taken anything away from that that kind of changed the way you see things? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, um, I've definitely became someone who really critiques software now and just general overall design, which is nice because then I can sort of point things out, but it's also a curse because then it doesn't allow me to enjoy things because now I use different phone apps. For example, I have a security surveillance system at my house and the the app to manage the cameras is absolute garbage. It's just a maze of getting from one place to another just to edit different settings. So if prior to this class, I wouldn't have really been so judgmental like that. But on the bright side though, it helps me build better software for my users because I want to be an accessible person. Mm -hmm. I'm a believer of equal opportunity. So if I could allow accessibility for all my users, that's really going to sort of make me feel good about myself to you know know that i'm not limiting people from using my software that's good that's great yeah like i imagine that like once you you know understand the problems of the way some things get run then once you see that out in the real world then you certainly have a different perspective on it yes definitely the second question is how um i guess in this case computer science how your life kind of influenced the way that you do your computer science work okay Well, I will say this as a queer person, I'm definitely seeing ways where binaries can be broken. So, you know, the gender binary, definitely there's a lot of systems out there that still use the, are you male or female? There's Mm -hmm. never an in-between. I know Facebook might have allowed you to sort of choose otherwise, but there's, I'm still seeing a lot of software systems that only work with the binary. And it's like, uh, I want to like break that. I want to, you know, get that out of there and just make it that it doesn't ask, like they don't care. Or if not, you know, maybe include more options and as well as like the option to put whatever you're most comfortable with. But Unfortunately, we live in a corporate America system still where things are done by the bosses and not necessarily by what Mm. I want to do. Yeah, for sure. Great, great answer. So now we have a weekly check-in. I just wanted to, you know, just see how your week has been. Is there like anything that's been particularly on your mind the past week or so? Like, is there something that you can't let go? Like, and this could be anything like science or non-science related. Yeah. So actually one thing I've been having like yell at me at the back of my head is exercise more, damn it. Like you're spending way too much time at the computer sitting in your desk all day. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I really need to get my body moving because going back to, you know, anatomy is just, you got to keep your blood flowing and like your muscles in use or else they're going to start deteriorating Mm -hmm. on you. Yeah, for sure. 
I wanted to ask you how you're doing transitioning into your first job experience in the middle of a pandemic. Like I'm sure a lot of postgrads are experiencing that right now, especially in industry. Just kind of maybe want to highlight your experience with how this is going. Yeah, so it's definitely tough and isolating, you know, not being able to sort of form those relationships at the office that sort of have like a support group of people who uplift you and support you when you're going through difficult times. Because when everyone's just behind their laptops doing their work from home, you don't have that small talk or that water cooler chat that happens in between meetings or in between, you know, your lunch breaks going out with coworkers. So there's definitely something lacking there. It's been difficult, but I mean, I'm surviving. Uh, It's just sort of, you have to put in the extra effort to find out who's willing to be friends. And one thing I suggested was, how come we don't have like a Discord server? So I mentioned that. One of my coworkers said, you know, that's a great idea. Why don't I set that up? Up. So he sets it up. He got permission with the supervisors. They said, yeah, you, you're allowed to like invite people. But of course, we have to follow like workplace restrictions that like, you know, limit what we can say and do outside of, you know, company time. But other than that, it's great because like we play video games together. Fall Guys is big right now. So it's just, you know, we all hop on at a certain time. We play Fall Guys. We just chat. It's a great game. They'll just laugh at people. Haha, you fell to your death right there. You know, <laughs> it's for those of you who don't know, you're a jelly bean and you have to make it through obstacle courses. So it's just, you got to do things like that to sort of fill in those missing gaps just find people of similar interests so in my case it has been to be video games it's not everyone's thing but you know maybe if you're into books start a book club with your coworkers. you know it's just stuff like that and then finally we just kind of wanted to see like if you wanted to plug in any of your social media or any like places that the users can maybe find you or perhaps engage with you and kind of maybe maybe learn more about what you've experienced um, as a latinx in computer science yeah okay so if you want to follow me my personal account on twitter i just just throwing us out there i post random stuff whether it be political or computer science related or just me speaking whatever's on my mind you can follow me my twitter handle is pragmasexual p-r-a-g-m-a-s-c-x-u-a-l or if you want to follow my uh plant twitter account it's going to be plant shelf so it's it's empty right now but i'm hoping by the time you listen to this podcast i will have some sort of content there maybe discussing the release stages or just sort of doing that community so stay tuned for that and if you want to follow me on instagram my personal account is where in the world is what is <laughs> it's a bit long um i'm sure you'll include a link to these in the bio right i will i will, I will okay yeah. okay all right and then finally the acknowledgement section was there any particular like events movement charities orgs opinions maybe hills that you die on that maybe you want to like plug in into this section here just kind of put it out in the podcasting world uh, so yes, if you are interested in plants and want to learn more about us, uh, please visit my site plantshelf.com and you'll find links there to all the social accounts if you need to sort of see updates on how everything's going. Uh, feel free to DM me. Uh, I am running those social media pages. Or if you want to follow my personal Twitter, you have that as an option as well. You know, we're five months into this pandemic, I believe. So please continue to stay at home, wash your hands. That's why we could sort of resume going out, you know, having social interactions with friends and family because we all miss that. And other than that, if you do go out, please remember to tip your waiters and waitresses. They really need it right now. And don't forget to support Black-owned businesses. Yes. Yes. Very good. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, You've been a really great help in terms of having this podcast come into fruition. So I just wanted to have an episode to, you know, feature you because your background, I think, is something that's worth highlighting. 
But before we sign off, um, I just wanted to direct the listeners to the episode description, which you can find on anchor.fm slash science at all. There you will find links to episode transcripts or any organizations and resources that we might have brought up in this episode. Additionally, I just wanted to let you know that even though it is only the second episode, this podcast will be taking a brief hiatus for a few weeks. After all, tis the season for applications. I'll be working on an NSF GRFP application, that's National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship Program, and applications for fall 2021 PhD programs. So I hope to be dedicating time and committing time to submitting the NSF GRFP app while taking a huge chunk out of reworking last year's PhD application and revitalizing it for this year. So while I'm out here writing, it would be a great help to the podcast if you could submit your own writing by rating and reviewing Science at All on Apple Podcasts, or even send me your own reviews and comments via email to neuronnerd.info at gmail.com. And if you like this podcast content, be sure to follow Science at All on wherever you find your podcasts and spread the word to your friends, peers, and colleagues. Right now, it's one of the few parameters available for me to gauge what can improve and what to develop. Uh, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Science at All Pod to keep an eye out for updates of future episodes and maybe other random tweets that I might make during my writing breaks. Thank you again, Andrew. Do you have any last minute things you want to mention? Maybe? Well, thank you for having me on your second episode. This was definitely a delight, something different. I've never done a podcast before. So I'm a person who likes to sort of try new experiences. And mm. this was definitely an enjoyable one. So thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for coming on and accepting my invitation. Um, so I don't really have a sign off thing, phrase or whatever. So I guess we can just say bye. <laughs> bye. bye. Another thing is I don't know if another episode will be out by the time the U.S. elections are complete, so I would like to urge my listeners who are eligible to vote to register to vote by the deadline of your local elections. Whether it be voting by mail or going in person to your local polling place, you want to make sure that you register. If you're voting by mail, please read and follow the instructions carefully on your ballot. There are plenty of online resources available that help you complete and send the ballot correctly as well as providing common mistakes to avoid in order to prevent any reason to question the security of your ballot. Tiny mistakes can give reason to throw your ballot away. Additionally, if you're voting in your local polling place, please be informed of the location of your local polling place and ask questions about the process to make sure you follow the protocol properly. This is especially true if you originally registered to vote by mail, but then decided to vote in person. Contact your local polling place to address your situations. Once again, be safe, socially distance, and most importantly, stay in line. There are expected to be long lines and maybe voter intimidation and suppression. But if you stay in line, you will be given access to vote. Stay in line and stay safe. Wear a mask. Good luck, voters. <laughs>